This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Chris Hammer, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, no, I um, I, I don't know why we got you late in the day. We should have had you earlier. I mean, what a success this book has been, Scrublands. Wow, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Um, now, for the very few of you out there who haven't heard of Chris or haven't seen Scrublands, um, we were talking about it at Pilates this morning, I might add. Chris Hammer was a journalist, or are you still a journalist? No, I'm, I'm now writing full-time, writing fiction oh, wow. full-time, yeah. Okay. No, I'm very of, recent. I'm living the dream. Okay. Oh, about a year. Yeah. About a year. So, until a year ago, Chris Hammer was a journalist for more than 30 years, covering both Australian federal politics and international affairs. For many years, he was roving, a roving correspondent for SBS's flagship current affairs program, Dateline, and he's also acted as chief political correspondent for The Bulletin and as a senior political journalist for The Age. All told, he reported from more than 30 countries. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, never home. Okay, in 2010, Chris turned to writing books and published his first, The River, to critical acclaim, which was non-fiction, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I wrote two non-fiction books, one called The River and one The Coast, kind of like travel writing but with a purpose. And The, the River was looking at the, it was during the drought, the big millennial drought, to try and find out what was actually happening out there in, in the hinterland. And it's it, it's a precursor, in a way, to Scrublands. Well, it provided the setting, yeah, it really stuck with me. And yeah. so Scrublands, of course, is set in this very, very isolated town. It's a fictitious town, um, but the landscape is real. It's set out there on the Hay Plain. Anyone who's driven between, say, Sydney or Canberra and Adelaide, you get to this stretch that's totally flat and treeless and barren and that's where my fictitious town. So, yes, it was travelling for that first book that then gave me the setting for Scrublands. Okay, all right. So uh, this year, as we just said, Chris released his first fiction book, Scrublands, a powerful, original and compelling crime novel set in a fictional town, Riverina, um, at the height of a devastating drought, drought as you just told us. Um, so I do want to say congratulations because um, it – kind of went to the bestseller list almost on release, didn't it? Yeah, it was phenomenal. Their publisher, Alan and Armand, did a, a phenomenal uh, job of, of getting it out there and getting you know, booksellers to read it, which is, you know, it's not easy, particularly with a debut author, fiction author. So um, they did a fantastic job. And, yeah, it, it, within a couple of weeks it was the number one fiction mm. book in Australia. I think um, publishers do a fabulous job and I think Alan and Unwin um, do a great job. However, the job is in the story and you can't fool a reader. And I think that that's what you've done here. You, you know, it's so compelling. It's such a page turner and as wonderful uh, a promotion as you got. And you did. Um, it really is about the story. And I know we, you, you, you were with us recently, um, on book club last month, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. And, uh, I read out a comment from a reader, but what was it? One of them, one of the readers, um, uh, made a note on Facebook, a comment on Facebook and she said, warning. What did she say? Warning, 
if you start it, you're not going to do anything else. Or yeah, you won't get to sleep warning, or something. Yeah, warning, if you start reading this book, nothing else gets done. I, I met a, a – um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not extraordinarily um, – Long, but it is quite, it's quite a big book. I, I met a woman, um, up in uh, New England who read it in six hours, which, right. I, which I was thinking I couldn't read it in six hours. Yeah, so, but it is a patient. Yeah. I had Manette Walters in the other day, um, who I'm sure mm. you know of, um, mm. and, uh, she was here with her agent, her literary agent, and very, she's from the UK, and very mm. rarely do authors travel with their literary agent. But anyway, there she was, and she was sitting in our waiting area, and she was reading Scrublands. It had a different cover on it, though. There must be a UK edition. There's a UK and American editions are coming out in early January. She had a proof, a UK proof. Yeah, and it's got more of a red dirt cover. It the did. Americans, are interesting, have taken the same cover. It's right. modified, but the same there one you, you see here, yeah. Yeah, well, she said, when in Rome. Yeah. <laughs> And that's what she was reading. So that's fantastic. And I, 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 I had to write a note to remind myself to tell you that. Okay. So I want to know where all the writing started. You know, how you became a journalist. Where did you grow up? So let's start with growing up and sure. when you first thought about the written word and. So I grew up in Canberra. I was born in Tasmania, but, um, grew up in Canberra and we always had books in the house. And I was very, I remember, as a child, desperately wanting to be able to read and write because my um, elder brother and sister were reading and writing. Mm-hmm. And my mother, for some reason, didn't think it was such a brilliant idea for me to be learning to read or write before I went to school. But uh, so you I was, couldn't wait. I was a bit frustrated. <laughs> so, yeah, I really got into it. And, and I kind of went very quickly to reading chapter books. So. And, you know, sounding out words and trying to, and yeah. skipping words to, you know, just to try and yeah. get the meaning. And, and so it was actually, I almost taught myself to read, I guess. So, and it, so I was reading books like, you know, Wind in the Willows and things like that and not really getting them. And I remember this book that I, I, it was kind of like a, um, it was a chapter book, but obviously modified for children. It was King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And I just loved that book. You know, straight away I liked all the, you know, the knights in shining armor and daring do and stuff. But then, of course, it doesn't end well. No, <laughs> you know? it doesn't. And it's like, I'm like oh, 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 that can happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not so everything it, has a good ending. <laughs> so you know, as I got older, I'd go back and read it, and of course, you read and go, oh, so Lancelot's having it off with a queen, yeah. you know, which I didn't actually get when I was six or seven. <laughs> do you know? I often say that. I mean, I'm not a teacher, and I don't know what the ed- educators think, but I often do think that about children when they're reading um, above their age range, they just really take in what they want to take in, or can take in, yeah. or are emotionally, you know, intelligent enough to take in. And then if they come back and read it five years later, it'll be a whole new experience, exactly. won't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah. was the case. That case, was the um, I also, um, I've got little children around me and often the expectation is that the day they start school, they will know how to read. They think that learning to read is like that. Yeah. And so they'll come home, one little fellow that I know came home and said, but I didn't learn how to read today. Mm. So, yeah, it takes a little bit longer than that. You'll get there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't wait, though. No, no, I, I, I couldn't wait. And yeah. so that was – so ever since then I've been a reader. Yes. Um, 
And I think most people who are writers, you know, they start with reading and and then you get the idea, oh, actually, I wouldn't mind having a crack at that sort of thing. Do you know, um, I think we've recorded more than 160 podcasts. I've spoken to 160 authors in the last year and a half and every one of them has told me that same line. Mm -hmm. To be a writer, you have to be a reader. Yeah. 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 Okay, so you're reading. And unusual for young boys as well, or just a bit harder? Maybe. I, I never had that yeah. impression. I mean, my brother, who's two years older, was a reader. He, he read different things to me mm-hmm. as we got older. But um, And there are always books in our house too, which I think is important. Yeah. Um, and it was a different era too. There wasn't... You know, there wasn't the internet. What did your parents do? So my, well, they were both they they met in a small country town as school teachers. So yeah. they were both school teachers. We I went knew to Can- you were going to say that. When we went to Canberra, my father was a public then became a public servant. Right. And um, and my mother became more of a part time teacher. She, you know, in the, in that era, so she was looking after us kids for a while, and then went back back to mm. teaching. Mm. Um, yeah. So that was. That was part of what you know yeah. our life, and so you grew up in Canberra. I grew up in Canberra. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and what was your life like at school? Were you thinking then that I'm going to be a writer? No, I I don't think I had any idea at all what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, but I liked. Um, I was good at school and had aptitude, but I was drawn more to the. So I was good at things like maths and science, but. Um, I was always drawn more to, say, literature and to creative stuff. Now, it was Canberra and it had a new school system that was very progressive. Um, and so I did subjects like filmmaking and photography um, and some art and so I, and music. So I did a lot of... And there's a lot of storytelling there, isn't there? Yeah. If you like. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I would have done some writing, but... You know, just as part of school, not outside of school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so then when did you think you're going to be a journalist? Um, how did n- that happen? Not for a while. I actually, you know, how uh, kids nowadays take a gap year. Well, I took three. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, tra- and got a job in, a the, gap three. <laughs> in the public service and travelled around the world a couple of times and eventually got the idea, oh, maybe I should go to uni. Well, I'd always... Assume, or do something. I assumed I would go to university. My brother and sister right. had gone to university. Yeah. Education so you're the like youngest right. of three. I'm the youngest, yeah. yeah. And... Um, and I didn't want to stay in, in Canberra because that might mean that I'd have to live with my parents again. Yeah. So I went to Bathurst and did journalism in Bathurst at, at Mitchell College. And partly of the, driving me there was, oh, it sounded like an interesting career, but also I was still interested in the, in the kind of the documentary making, photography sort of visual side of it as well. Mm-hmm. So I went up to, to um, Bathurst and... And again, I, I had really good English teachers at school in Canberra, including uh, Jeff Page, who's a very well-known um, Australian poet and part of that Canberra group of poets. So he'd get he'd get people coming in like Les Murray and mm-hmm. David Campbell and Bob wow. Brissenden and people like that yeah. used to come in and talk to yeah, our wow. class. So it was sort of, oh, you know... Um, Writers are real people, they do yes. exist, yes. which is funny, yeah. you know, as a kid it's almost like you're walking into books or you can't imagine 
who these people are have written all these books. Mm-hmm. This yet, is why these podcasts are so popular because yeah. people find out who these people are. Yeah. So at Bathurst, um, we did a lot of journalistic writing um, and there were people who taught us journalism, but there was a person who taught us writing and his name was Peter Temple. Oh, you're joking. Who hadn't at that point. So I'm maybe 21. At that stage, Peter hadn't, I don't, he hadn't published any fiction. I don't even know if he was writing it. He might have been quietly writing. Yeah. But he was a, he was a great stylist and he taught us a lot. He taught yeah. us, while the journalism lecturers, I guess, were teaching us the value of facts and information and how important journalism is to democracy, Peter was more, look, the words themselves matter. You know, it's not just what you're saying, it's how you say it. It's the style. Yeah. Uh, so for those people who don't know Peter Temple? He is um, probably the best crime writer Australia's uh, produced yes. um, and and won the Miles Franklin, which is kind of remarkable for a so-called, you know, a genre writer, a commercial writer. Exactly. Um, so he kind of lifted about and you know later on you know I read his books because I remembered him as a teacher and so you know I I um, read them and I think that was one of the reasons why when I did decided to have a a crack at writing fiction I thought oh yeah well crime um you need a good plot, but there's room, as he had demonstrated, there's, there's room for so much more. There's room for creative writing. There's, there's good room for good writing. There's room for atmospheric sort yes. of writing. You know, often crime books can have a lot of, say, tension yeah. in them. There's room for good characters because often, you know, typically a crime book has a murder in, in it. So why has, you know, it's a pretty extreme crime. Why has someone done it? So, You've got to get it. You've got to develop a character that can have a good reason and motivation yeah. and things like. That. So there is a lot of room in that genre, and there is a lot of in Australia and internationally. There is some really fine writing, you know, in crime books and a whole. Oh, absolutely. And a whole Michael Robotham is another one that he, uh, is, he writes really well. I think that's right. And um, I've I've gone back and reread. A few years here, he's just got better and better. His, yeah. his last Factor. one, the other wife, is you yeah. know, so beautifully written and so nuanced. Mm. And yeah, I think sometimes, and I'm not a writer, but for me as a reader, it, and I don't know if we talked about this at, at book club night, but you know, if the storyline is great, if the story's great, and the writing's great, that's when you have a great book. Mm. You know, because very often you can read a good. You, there's a good story there, but the writing just doesn't cut it. It doesn't, the execution of this, that style of the way you're telling it to me just doesn't work. Um, yeah. And that's, I think, the difference between a book that makes it to the bestseller list and a book that doesn't. Yeah, it's... Because you can't fool a reader. That's right. And I, I think too often um, people who aspire to write books sometimes might lack the confidence just to tell the story they want to tell. So they they're trying to say impress publishers, so they're trying to you know what does a bestseller look like? I'm going to write a bestseller, and it becomes kind of derivative, and or I'm going to write a great work of fiction, um, and this this will impress all the judges, you know. So you write a book yeah. that's trying to impress people as opposed to a book that works, yeah. and of course. 
At the same time, you're a debut author and you're loading all this pressure on yourself saying, I'm going to write a bestseller or I'm going to write a prize winner or something like that. You're much better off just trying to write a good book. I mean, to, go to, to intently say, well, to intend to write a bestseller is really the world's biggest mistake. It's a bit like, if you, it's, a, it's the same as like pop music. I'm going to yeah, write yeah, you know, yeah. a, a number yeah. one single or something. Yeah. It just doesn't work like that. So then I want to go back to, so journalism. Tell me about that because I'm, I'm really interested in your career as a journalist. Okay, so I left Bathurst and immediately got a job at Capital 7 in Canberra, which was the local commercial TV station. But in those days, um, the regional TV stations were monopolies. There was one per area. Yeah. And Canberra is a very affluent city, so we'd have plenty of money. So we had an hour of news every night. We had late news. We had current affairs programs. We had um, sports programs. We, had, we even had a Tonight Show for a while. So that's all gone now. Um, but so I started there and I started as a cadet and within, by my second year, I was covering the local ACT politics and by, and starting to do. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Some stuff in federal politics. And then in my third year, I went and worked sort of full-time in the old Parliament House. So you worked in current uh, local politics in the ACT and, and then federal and politics. And then federal politics, and that was fascinating, and having that year working in the old Parliament House was brilliant. Then... Who was the Prime Minister at the time? Uh, Bob Hawke. Right, wow. And uh, and John Howard was the opposition was leader. So it was towards the end. It was no, no, no. It was 1987. Oh, okay, yep. Uh, there was an election halfway through the year. That was the JP for PM one. Mm-hmm. Um, so an extraordinary time and very, you know, I, I loved it. But then, were you politically like at that age? Were you interested in politics, or you got the gig and that got you interested? I'd always been politically aware. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Canberra. Uh, I, I remember the dismissal and yeah. riding my bike down with my friends to rallies wow. with Goff and Manning Clark and people like that. So Canberra is a kind of made, well, I'm not sure, but I was certainly, and you know, my friends and I were sort of politically aware. Um, and again, in, in uh, Bathurst, um, you know, I had friends... At Mitchell, who were going down for the um, Franklin blockade and yeah. uh, 
there were marches against nuclear weapons. There's all sorts of stuff. So yeah, no, I was pol- I was politically aware. Yeah, and found it interesting, and, and particularly particularly back then, you know, yeah. as a as a younger person, I, I found it fascinating. I just want to interrupt you there and say, do you think young people are as politically active now? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> me and my friends were politically aware, but that doesn't mean we were representative of yes. you know young people across Australia at that time. True. And I think, um, I think young people today are aware. And one of the things that is motivating them is the environment and climate change because they see that's a problem that's still going to be around or yep. getting worse as they get older. Yeah. So no, I th- you know I'm not discouraged by um, like my my kids. I've got a son who's 20 and a oh. and a daughter who's 16, and they're very switched on. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, you're in Canberra and you're working for television. Then I decide to take some time off and try and write a book. Oh, at that time. At that time, which didn't go well. I just didn't. And work. why? Why didn't it go well? No, no. Why did you want to write a book? Well, I, I think, I don't know. I just, you know, I'd always had these urges to do something creative, and I thought I can't have it. Have a crack. Yeah, so I'm, I'm almost kind of like it's almost like an archaeological dig, going back trying to mine my own. What was I thinking at the time? And what did you write, and why didn't it go well? Well, I went didn't go well for a whole lot of reasons. One, I had the attention span of a gnat. Okay, so Daily News, I was really well suited you know, in my twenties <laughs> to Daily News because you go and do it, and there's lots of adrenaline. And you have to meet a deadline and then it's done. Yeah. And, you know, you, you go up with your friends and you go to work the next day. You don't even know what you're going to do because it depends on yeah. on w- what stories come up, what, what emerges during yeah. the day. So for me, my 20s, that sort of me, whereas the, the hard slog of writing something long. It's long and, form, And, yeah. of course, you know, I wasn't going to you know, muck around like writing short stories, like yeah. something sensible like that. No, I was going to write a novel. And I think I also suffered from, I think I wanted to be a writer more than I wanted to write a book. So, um, which I suspect is a fairly common phenomenon, you know, amongst, you know, people in their 20s. So any That's interesting, isn't it? I, I, yeah, I haven't heard that before and I quite like it. So the idea of being a writer was more appealing than the actual task. Yes. I mean, even you, you get, you get um, successful authors now who will say they don't particularly like writing. Oh, but, yeah. You know, it's, 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 I hear it's that hard. a lot. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I also hear? But, but they... they um, they find it very rewarding and fulfilling. That's um, right. They're not writing so that to be a writer. They are writing because they want to write books. Yeah. A lot of writers say to me on this podcast that it never gets easier. Like they can be up to book, you know, nineteen or book ten or book five, and it's as difficult as the f- it was for the first book to write. Look, but they still have to write because that's what they do. Yeah, I will. We'll, I don't see. I'm not at that point no. yet. I, mean, I guess <laughs> yeah. this is my third book, but it's my first fiction book. Um, I find fiction really liberating and joyful because you can just make things up and things emerge out of your subconscious and you put them down the page. Where 
with non-fiction, you know, you've got to check your facts, you've got to, you know, protect sources, you've got to double-check stuff, um, you've got to, yeah, you, you can't just make a good ending, you can't tie everything up. No, because you know, so in real life usually things don't get tied up. Exactly, so, so yeah. fiction was great. So that, and then what happened is a friend of mine um, rang me up and said, oh, look, there's a few weeks um work in Sydney at SBS, why don't you come up and it's almost like a paid holiday compared to what I've been doing in Canberra, so I did and then I I worked for SBS for 17 years. Wow, <laughs> is that sort right? Of yeah. Bouncing between Sydney and Canberra, so a couple of years in Sydney and back to Canberra for six, working back in a new parliament house, yeah. working on television current affairs programs, Yes. back to Sydney working for Dateline, travelling overseas, yeah. back to Canberra for a little short stint on news. Right. Back to Sydney, so and getting better and better as a journalist, and doing much more long form journalism, like half hour TV right. stuff, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, um, so I want to talk about the political climate and how we've changed and where we're at, and why we almost have a prime minister a year. What's your take on that? Um, I think there's some very serious problems with inside the Liberal Party in that it's in danger of not be, of losing its sort of grassroots support as a, as a political party. And that's a worry for the, for democracy because, um, it's then more susceptible to become captive to certain groups, like Factions. ideological groups, like, like, you know, this hard right faction that's yeah. been so, um, the Tony destructive. Yeah. yeah. The Scott Peter Morrison. Dutton, yeah. um, Erica Betts. But yeah. also of just big money because they've got to compete with Labor for money, and so they, you know, f- they, they can become captive, say, to the fossil fuel yes. industry. Yes, will give them money, and and we've seen the problem in the United States where money is too influential in politics. However, th- this sort of sh- that's a problem, but it's not. It's not the whole reason you've had this instability in Canberra. Because it's been both sides, hasn't it? Both sides. On the other hand, um, if Labor were to win the next election, which at the moment looks likely, Bill Shorten has been the leader there for five years or something. Um, Kevin Rudd, in his introduced sort of rules of how, how, how many votes you need to topple a leader, and it's quite difficult, and you have to go to the the party as well, like the, right. the grassroots thing. So it makes it very difficult to change a leader. So there's rules for the Labor Party and there's rules for the Liberal Party. Well, in, well there, in the past, how many rules? This is for the parliamentary party. So the sort of thing that just happened in yeah. the Liberal Party with Turnbull being rolled would be much more difficult in the Labor Party now, particularly if they're in power. So I think if Labor were to win, you might see a, a, a normal, more normal period of stability. Yeah. Um, but, and also partly because there's a lot of people there who realise how badly they stuffed up at their first opportunity, who are now all senior, would be senior members of Cabinet. Yeah. And they understand that they blew um, their first chance and they're not going to get another one if they get into the government this time. So it may be that... Um, that we do enter a period of stability, but there's a lot of ifs and buts there because you don't know what happened. You don't know if Labor's going to win the election 
events could happen. I mean, yeah, I, I covered the Tampa election in 2001. It looked like Labor was going to win and then the Tampa came along. and The biggest travesty yeah. of Australia. So, well, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of travesties, I'll tell you. Well, I'll tell you, that, that was yeah. the most embarrassing one, though. Well, it, and it, of course it's it's still with us. It's still with that's us. That's where that's... You know, that's the genesis of No Rule and Manus Island. Yeah, it is. Right it there, is. That election 2001, yeah, I think it's a long it's time ago. It's where, you know, I think I've, I've said this before on the, a million times on this podcast, but I think hatred in this country started with John Howard. He started to politicalise hatred in this country and he used it as a dis- divisive tool to stay in power. Yeah, and you can see you can see the current government being tempted Along those same lines to exploit divisions, you know, so-called African gangs but the mood in Melbourne, etc. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I, I interviewed. I, I, I recorded a podcast very early on with George Saunders when um, Trump had just become. It was within a couple of months of he becoming president. And I don't know if you know George Saunders, but he was covering Trump for the New Yorker at the time. Mm. And he said to me, because, you know, the American, I mean, American people were shocked and disappointed, and I think he was one of them. But he said to me, ultimately, he trusts the system. And whatever happens, he trusts the system. There's two, there's a whole lot of things that Australia does better than the United States, but two of the main ones is compulsory voting. Yes. So in America, the political parties, uh, devote a lot of resources to so-called getting the vote out. And when we think of that, we think of money going around. But also the politics, they have to appeal to the extremes in the party to get their nominations up. So if you're a Republican, you have to go, in the past, you've had to go madly right to get the nomination and then swing back to try and get the Senate vote. But the other way you get your vote out, your so-called base out, is make really extreme comments. Here in Australia, because... Voting's compulsory. The politicians are fighting more over the centre ground right from the word go. That's one thing. The other thing we've got, it's quite a strange thing, we've got a, a federal electoral commission that runs elections. Now, that sounds like, so what? They also decide where the electorates are. In yes. America, the electorates are gerrymandered. Yeah. And they're corrupted by corporate interests and all sorts of things. So the Australian system is less likely to throw up the extremes that the American system But getting back to that comment where you trust the system, what's happening in Australia, I think, is this constant rotation of leadership. Is it because the system's not working for the voters today? Is it because we're living a life that's you know, um, where the journalism comes via social media and we're getting, getting, you know, sound bites and this and that. I feel as though we've got a system that's in a way, um, uh, has been around a long time, yet we've got a communication system that's, that's really, I mean, it's no longer television and newspapers. And is that what, it, what's causing the conflict? Yeah. Um, th- there's, there's, Politicians are so easily distracted and led by what's happening. Polls. Not just that day, but that hour they exactly. have to address. They feel if, if the government says something, the opposition and the Greens, everybody else will feel compelled to respond within the hour or they'll miss the news cycle. So you have these, you yes. have otherwise, you know, intelligent people who'll spend their entire day sort of at the end of the day, so we won today. Yeah. Our side won today. 
and it just washes over most of the but public. But one what today? It's yeah, just it's, won the media poll today or whatever. I know. It's, it's meaningless yeah. and it's pointless and it's very destructive and it means that people spend... The politicians spend enormous amounts of time concentrating on stuff they shouldn't be concentrating on as opposed to actually going and doing yeah. policy work. That's what Julia Gillard said to me once, yeah. yeah. It's just, you know, you're spending your whole day trying to respond to media that's out every five minutes and meanwhile, you you know, you're meant to be doing policy work. Yep, well, well that's... That's right. She yeah. would have, and she, she was on the cusp, I think. She and Rudd were kind of the first to really get caught in that. Yeah. Howard wasn't because, uh, because he'd been in exactly. there for so long and was so entrenched and had his ways of dealing with the media. Um, I think, but I, I would think whoever's in power really needs to rethink that. Um, Morrison isn't going to do that simply because he doesn't have time. He's just running like a hamster in a wheel trying to get his name out. Yeah. Doesn't well, have t- time or the intellectualism. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, um, we won't get into that. Um, uh, Chris, we could talk for another hour. Um, I'm enjoying this conversation very much, but we've got to wind it down. Um, Scrublands. Congrat, uh, you know, I know I said it earlier. Congratulations. A great book. Um, you've done very well. Are you writing your second? Uh, yes, yeah. I am. I'm well into it. Next um, year? We'll see it next year? Yes. Well, that's the plan. Okay. <laughs> and that's what Alan and Owen <laughs> definitely want. Um, I would like that too. It's the same protagonist, Martin Scarsden, the journalist. Fantastic. So it'll be con- a kind of a continuation. Well, it'll be a standalone book. You won't yes. need to have read Scrublands. Um, yep. So that's, that's, Going well, you know, fingers crossed at this stage. We can't wait. Thank Uh, you so much. Yeah, thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play, or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.